Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a summer day in the mid-1960s at Bass Lake, the California Hells Angels were gathered for their annual meeting. The unofficial leader, 30-year-old Sonny Barger, strolled through the quiet campground. As president of the Oakland Charter, he was a legend in his own right. At least, that's what he'd say. As Sonny walked, he spotted a brand new California Hells Angels flag. It featured a redesigned logo that had been strung up by some members of the SoCal Charters. The show of unity pleased Sonny. They were all brothers under the patch, no matter what part of the state they called home. But something unusual caught his eye. Sonny looked closer. The flag was riddled with small holes, bullet holes. Furious, he stormed up to the nearest SoCal angel, Grubby Glenn. Sonny demanded to know what had happened. Were his brothers really so pissed about the redesigned patch that they would shoot up their own flag? Grubby Glenn kept his mouth shut. But Sonny had a secret weapon for making a man talk, his fists. Sonny wailed on Grubby Glenn, and soon all the nearby angels were getting in on the action. Sonny kept punching until the SoCal angels were all on the ground or in the lake. If anyone was unsatisfied with his decisions, tough luck. Sonny Barger was the head of the Hells Angels, and what he said was law. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second episode on Sonny Barger, president of the Oakland Charter of the Hells Angels. By the mid-1960s, the hard-partying and sometimes violent motorcycle club was loved and hated almost equally. Cops detested their mayhem, but both hippies and conservatives respected the club's strong individualist streak. Sonny Barger grew up poor and neglected in Oakland, California. He tried to find a sense of purpose in the army, but was kicked out for forging his birth certificate. In 1957, he stumbled into the Hells Angels. However unlikely his road to the Brotherhood was, 
being an outlaw finally gave him a purpose in life. Rising quickly through the ranks, Sonny became club president, a precarious role when the Angels were gaining a reputation as low-level drug dealers, thieves, and violent rapists. At the same time, they were growing famous in the 1960s counterculture movement as respected drug lords and partiers. Especially after opposing anti-Vietnam War protests in 1965, the Hells Angels were a household topic. Suddenly, folks all across America saw them as standing up for American values. They became modern-day cowboys. Sonny Barger was growing into his role in the club. He wasn't just the president of a biker gang. He was also an iconoclast businessman. Naturally, he was inclined to capitalize on their newfound popularity. Sonny made quick work of expanding the club. In 1966, the first non-California Hells Angels Club was founded in Omaha, Nebraska. Soon, motorcycle clubs across the world were petitioning to join the famous and fearsome Hells Angels. Sure, the Angels were still drug dealers and violent criminals, but Sonny didn't think that prohibited them from running a legitimate business. He officially incorporated the Hells Angels in the state of California and trademarked their name and logo. Hollywood soon came knocking, wanting to take advantage of the popularity of these crass cowboys. Sonny loved the idea of free publicity, but of course, that authentic name and logo came with a price tag. One of the first big biker movies was Hell's Angels on Wheels in 1967, which was the first serious role for a young Jack Nicholson. Audiences loved the grittiness and authenticity of the film, which heavily involved the Hell's Angels themselves. The Oakland Charter were paid as consultants on the movie, and Sonny even acted in a small role as president of the Hell's Angels. In his memoir, he recalled how well Nicholson fit in during filming. Some angels even took him for a member of another charter. This kicked off a trend of biker movies that romanticized and valorized the Hells Angels. A dizzying slate of films followed, including Angels from Hell, Angels Unchained, Angels Die Hard, Hells Angels 69, and Black Angels. The glamour was free and brought in good coin. But Sonny remained focused on the real moneymaker, the Angels' burgeoning drug trade. 1967 was the year of the famous Summer of Love, when hippies and free spirits flooded into the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco. They were looking for freedom and free love, and of course, lots of drugs. The Hells Angels had always been prolific pot smokers and low-level dealers, but their encounter with Ken Kesey and his Merry Pranksters in 1965 introduced them to psychedelics. The hippies did weed and LSD, a lot of which was provided by the Angels. But what brought the Hells Angels into the big leagues was Fincyclidine, PCP for short, which the Hells Angels made famous under the street name Angel Dust. PCP was a powder that could be snorted or mixed with tobacco or marijuana and smoked. Plus, it was cheap to make in large quantities in a lab. No need to wait for marijuana plants to grow. 
This gave the Hells Angels complete control over the process. If they could speed up supply, well, that meant they could meet demand, meaning more money. But the heyday of angel dust was short-lived. Hippies took it seeking transcendent dissociations, but too often got bad trips, which could include hallucinations, paranoia, and psychosis. Sonny knew there were problems with PCP, but didn't want to give up the stable revenue from selling a lab-made drug. So he found the next best thing, meth. A Shell oil scientist named Kenny Maxwell taught the angels everything they needed to know to be successful street chemists. But just as the Hells Angels seemed on top of their drug-laden world, their popularity, much like the decade of the 1960s, was about to come to an end. The Summer of Love continued through the apex of the famous Woodstock concert in August of 1969. Yet one band wanted to make an even bigger mark on rock and roll history. The Rolling Stones set about staging their own outdoor concert in San Francisco on December 6, 1969. Arguably the biggest Brit band in America, the Stones were wrapping up touring for their upcoming album, Let It Bleed. This conveniently helped them shoot Gimme Shelter, a documentary about the guys. The doc, though, would be incomplete without a big finale, something only a huge, free concert could deliver. The Stones were no strangers to the Angels, or so they thought. During their 1969 concert in London, the band had mistakenly believed the leather-clad security guards were members of the Hells Angels. The Stones liked the image of being protected by bikers, so they reached out to Pete Nell, president of the San Francisco Hells Angels, to broker the deal. In exchange for $500 worth of beer, the Bay Area Hells Angels would sit on stage and protect these wimpy rock and rollers. But big finales often require months of planning. The Stones had only days. When they couldn't get the permits necessary for Golden Gate Park, the band scrambled to find another location. Eventually, they landed on the Altamont Speedway, a car racing track 30 miles outside of Oakland. The Speedway was no Woodstock. Instead, it was full of busted cars and broken glass, and there wasn't enough time to build a proper stage so a smaller one was constructed just a few feet off the ground. The only barrier separating the band from the audience would be a thin piece of string. The venue was less than ideal, but the Stones hoped their fans wouldn't mind. But the night before the show, the hippies and flower children of San Francisco weren't arriving in droves, as the band had hoped. Instead, a different crowd camped out, getting ready for the next day. They were rowdy and started drinking. Even the LSD was different. When the Summer of Love began, drug makers were on a mission to produce pure drugs with the blissful highs. But as the illegal drug trade grew, more vendors jumped in, and they were far less scrupulous. Some even added strychnine, a poison under the auspices that it would lengthen the trip. Others laced LSD with speed, which made people overstimulated. Partiers were also mixing booze with acid, something no hippie would condone just a few years before. 
Now, getting stoned wasn't about a spiritual experience. It was about getting wasted. The cocktail of alcohol and acid led to erratic, often violent behavior. As the morning dawned on December 9th, a group of Hell's Angels rolled up in an old school bus with their wives and girlfriends. But instead of bringing some order to the chaos, they did what Hell's Angels do best, joined the party. Sonny Barger wasn't even on the bus. Sure, he was looking forward to the free beer and concert later that evening, but December 9th was a monthly officers meeting. Sonny was nothing if not a stickler for club rules. While he and the other senior angels were discussing business in Oakland, things were quickly getting out of hand in Altamont. Concert goers broke through the flimsy string barrier during Carlos Santana's set, forcing the younger angels to protect his musicians using their favorite weapons, fists. By 5 p.m., the sun was setting, the crowd was riled up, and Sonny Barga was pulling into the speedway with a pack of angels, largely unaware of the chaos awaiting him. Almost immediately, Sonny knew something was wrong. The Stones were due to perform any minute, yet the band was hiding backstage. Seeing the massive, rowdy crowd, they'd hoped waiting out of sight would calm things down. Sonny sent his angels to work, clearing the crowd back from the stage. They even created another barrier using their own bikes. This was as good a protection as could be offered. Everyone knew that when you messed with one angel's bike, the whole club would make you pay for it. Sonny and a few other angels then ventured backstage for a meeting with the Stones. Formalities did little to take off the edge, though. The Stones were fidgety, taking their time and retuning their instruments, stalling the inevitable. Growing impatient, Sonny assured them that it was as safe as it was going to get. Things would only get worse the longer the crowd was forced to wait. The Stones, though, didn't want to chance their safety. They wanted the Angels to escort them onto the stage. Barga bristled at the proposal. He'd come too far to be servile to a bunch of wimpy musicians. But to keep the peace, Sonny and a bunch of Angels took the stage ahead of the Stones, a warning to the audience. As he anticipated, their presence did little to control the angry, intoxicated crowd. Just after the Stones took the stage, one exhausted audience member leapt up from the grass and rushed towards them, which just so happened to be the exact spot where the Angels' bikes were lined up. On stage, Sonny spotted a fan kneeling atop one of the Angels' bikes. He yelled at the guy to get off, to no avail. So Sonny jumped down off the stage to remove him himself. Other Hell's Angels followed suit, abandoning the stage to protect their property. They shoved and punched the audience, who responded by pushing back and throwing glass bottles. As the music began, drugged-out fans kept lashing out. A topless woman tried to climb over the front row of the audience and onto the stage. While several angels unsuccessfully pulled at her, Sonny hopped back up and kicked her in the head. The naked woman dropped with a thud. Clearly spooked, the Stones tried to get Sonny's attention, 
they were going to stop playing. But Sonny knew that the music was the only thing preventing a full-fledged riot from breaking out. Sonny pulled out his pistol and jammed it into guitarist Keith Richards' side. His message was clear. Play or else. The music lurched on, as if queuing up the worst part of the night. An 18-year-old fan named Meredith Murdoch Hunter was high on meth and desperate to get a better view of the band. Murdoch was pushed back from the stage and knocked down by a group of angels. In response, he pulled a pistol out of his pocket and held it out to defend himself. A Hell's Angel named Al Passero spotted the weapon. He pulled out a hunting knife, then tackled Murdoch. He stabbed him in the back five times. As Murdoch lay bleeding on the ground, the rest of the angels swarmed his limp body, beating and stomping him until he lay dead. What Sonny Barger didn't know was that the death of Murdoch Hunter would haunt the Hells Angels for the rest of their lives. Coming up, the feds put the squeeze on Sonny Barger and the Hells Angels. Now, back to the story. In the 1960s, Sonny Barger's Hells Angels held unique status as rogue outlaws and pop culture phenomena. But when an angel killed a raucous concertgoer at Altamont, all of that changed. It was unclear who to blame for the mess. The Rolling Stones, the other concert organizers, and the police all certainly shouldered some responsibility. But no one could deny the famous outlaw bikers were most complicit. It was an angel who wielded the fatal knife. Alan Passero was charged with the murder of Murdoch Hunter, but he went on to plead self-defense and was acquitted. Though he avoided prison time, the court's ruling on his innocence didn't matter in the court of public opinion. The Hells Angels lost all the public goodwill they had built up throughout the 1960s. They were no longer viewed as misunderstood individualists, they were murderers. And to the police, they were the biggest organized crime threat in California. Sonny Barger would enter the 1970s squarely in the crosshairs of the FBI. In June of 1970, his Oakland home was raided by the feds. A tip indicated they might find a big drug stockpile, but that turned up dry. What did exist in Sonny Barger's home, however, was a lot of guns. And unlucky for him, California had recently passed a law stating that ex-felons, like Sonny, were prohibited from possessing certain firearms. Violation of gun laws wasn't exactly what the feds were going for, but it would do. As protocol dictated, they had to infantry his stockpile. In that moment, the feds caught a lucky break. Donald Howarth, a former Mr. America, just so happened to be walking up Sonny's driveway. He wasn't empty-handed either. The suspicious-looking briefcase he carried contained $350,000 worth of cocaine and heroin. Naturally, the feds searched him. Not a bad consolation prize. Howarth was convicted of possession and sentenced for five years to life. 
Incredibly, Sonny managed to beat the charge. He slid off on a technicality that the Fed seized the drugs before they officially entered Sonny's home. Beating criminal charges was a theme that would continue through the early 1970s for Sonny, even when the evidence was staring the police right in the face. Two years later, in January of 1972, park rangers outside of Oakland noticed a suspicious sight. A caravan of vehicles was winding down the mountain roads late one night. Thinking they might have caught some illegal deer hunters, they attempted to stop the vehicles. That's when all hell broke loose. One car careened off the road, then tried to run over the park rangers when they approached on foot. The other car gave chase down the hill as random objects were thrown out of the windows. By the time the rangers stopped both vehicles, they were sure they weren't dealing with ordinary hunters. But sure enough, inside the car, they found none other than Sonny Barger and a handful of Hell's Angels. But as the rangers proceeded to arrest the bikers, they heard some muffled noises coming from inside the trunk. When the lid was lifted, they found two men bound and gagged inside. Meanwhile, the other rangers had backtracked up the road to gather the items that had been jettisoned from the vehicles. They found a handgun, shotguns, ammunition, and a silver belt buckle engraved with the words, Sonny Barger, President, Oakland Hells Angels. Sonny was arrested. A typical open and shut case of kidnapping seemed imminent. By the time the case went to trial, though, the two men in the trunk had changed their tune. They now insisted that they were willing participants in an innocent hazing ritual. This was a frequent occurrence at a Hells Angels trial. Key witnesses would suddenly disappear or change their stories at the last minute. There was little the police could do. Sure, they knew that the Hells Angels were coercing the changes, but the authorities didn't have a clear plan to stop such behavior. And without these key witnesses, the Hells Angels would then walk free. Sonny Barger's clear-cut kidnapping case was reduced to a charge of unlawful imprisonment. Barger pled guilty, paid a fine, and walked out a free man. But Sonny Barger's luck with the law wouldn't last forever. It turns out, dead men couldn't testify on his behalf. Just four months later, on May 21st, 1972, the police responded to a report of a house on fire in the Oakland Hills. Once the fire was extinguished, they found the body of the homeowner, Severo Ajero. He was slumped in the shower with a bullet to the head. Later that same day, two cleaning women found the bodies of Oakland residents Gary Kemp, Patrick Kelly Smith, and Willard Thomas shot to death in a nearby home. Bullets at the scene matched those found in Ajero. It didn't take the cops long to connect the dots. Ajero was a known cocaine dealer and Kemp often moonlit as his driver. This was clearly a drug deal gone wrong. The police didn't have to search long for more information. Days later, a man named Richard Ivaldi walked into the local police station ready to tell his story. 
the Oakland Hells Angels were responsible for the murders. Consequences be damned, Evaldi would go on the record. Evaldi had worked with the Gero in the past, but on the night in question, he insisted he was only there as a friend. Kemp and DeGero had recently acquired a large haul of cocaine and were looking for buyers. An Oakland Hells Angel named Sergey Walton purchased $10,000 worth, roughly one-tenth of their total. Sergey Walton was also conveniently the right-hand man to Sonny Barger, and Ivaldi got the sense that the Hells Angels' business might not be finished. According to Ivaldi, Sonny showed up at the house later that night in disguise with a pistol and a silencer. Sonny killed Ejero and ordered both angels to dump the body in the shower and light the house on fire. Then he moved on to Kemp and the rest. Ivaldi was unsure about Sonny's motive, but offered his own speculations. Maybe he wanted to steal the remaining drugs. Or maybe Sonny felt like the guys had reneged on some kind of deal. Either way, Ivaldi insisted that the boss was responsible. That was enough to satisfy the Oakland Police Department. They arrested Sonny on charges of murder, interstate dope trafficking, and possession of $90,000 worth of cocaine. When questioned, Sonny insisted that he had never arranged a drug deal with the victims. He'd never even met most of them. He encountered one or two, but only through low-level mischief, like selling them fake IDs. Plus, Sonny had an alibi for the night of the murder. Sure, he had been hanging out with his girlfriend, but that had to count for something, right? The police weren't taking any chances. They set bail for Sonny at $150,000, which was way more cash than the Angels could scrounge together. So he settled into the Alameda County Jail to await his trial. While Sonny sat in his cell, the California State Department of Justice issued a report detailing the extent of the Hells Angels criminal enterprise. In just over a decade, they had gone from small-time drug dealers to the biggest organized crime threat in the state. The state of California felt pressure to make its case against Sonny. They might finally bring down the leader of the Hells Angels. But little did Sonny know that the body count had not yet finished. Coming up, his fellow angels turn on Sonny Barger. Now back to the story. October 30th, 1972 was the day Sonny Barger stood trial for the murders of drug dealer Severo Ajero and his associates earlier that year. On that very same day, a search warrant was served on a ranch near Ukiah, California, a small town north of San Francisco. Was it a coincidence? Probably not. The ranch belonged to George Weathern and his wife Helen. Weathern had been an Oakland Hells Angel, but since left the squad. He was looking forward to taking a break from outlaw life to work the land. But what was buried underneath that land got the attention of the FBI. Police had been led to the ranch by an angel named Whispering Bill, who had served time alongside Sonny in the Alameda County Jail. Lonely, 
Sonny had confided in him about some angel's business, trusting his incarcerated brother to keep his secret. But little did Sonny know that Whispering Bill was dying of throat cancer. He wanted to spend a few more days as a free man, so Bill made a deal with the police that eventually led them to dig up Weathern's ranch. And sure enough, buried deep under the earth were the year-old remains of two Georgia bikers, Big Tom Schull and Charles Baker, who had been strangled to death. They also found a young woman who had been shot in the head. This led to three Hell's Angels being arrested on suspicion of murder. Even Weathern and his wife didn't avoid the storm. They were taken in on narcotics possession and stolen firearms. In police custody, Weathern was frantic and furious. He'd been sucked back into the very life he tried so hard to escape. Desperate, he did the only thing he could think of. He grabbed two pencils and shoved them into his eyeballs. Weathern lived and would even see again. But he knew as he sat in jail, he had to do what was best for his wife and his kids. He had to turn state's witness on Sonny Barger. Back in Oakland, Sonny was involved in what would become one of the longest-running criminal trials in the county's history. And this time, with Sonny on the inside, onlookers wouldn't be intimidated into silence. But even the best witness couldn't make up for insufficient evidence. There was no murder weapon recovered, and a key found in Sonny's house matching a suitcase of drugs was too generic. Anyone who owned the popular brand would have the same key. Even worse, the police had undermined their own credibility. There was written evidence discovered that the Oakland police had traded guns with the Hells Angels in the hopes of reducing the Angels' bail. When months of evidence retrieval and witness statements were concluded, the jury unanimously found all four defendants not guilty. The feds were pissed. So they decided to charge Sonny with every other crime they could possibly pin on him. Given the slew of evidence they collected in their initial investigation and admissions he'd made on the stand, they had enough to move forward. The charges mounted to possession of heroin, cocaine, marijuana, as well as federal and state gun charges. Finally, Sonny was convicted. His sentence? 15 years to life. In 1973, 35-year-old Sonny Barger entered Folsom Prison. He was told he wouldn't be eligible for release until 2002. But while Sonny Barger was serving his sentence, the state of California passed SB 42, a law eliminating indeterminate sentences. This included Sonny's 15 to life. In addition, federal drug laws had changed, reclassifying his former convictions. With the new laws and some math, Sonny's sentence was revised to less than the five years he had already served. On November 3, 1977, 40-year-old Sonny Barger walked out of Folsom Prison and back into the world of the Hells Angels. Times had changed with Sonny in jail, though. 
the FBI was getting serious about investigating the Hells Angels for more than simple drug crimes. And now they had the help of their new informant, George Weathern. In 1970, the federal government passed the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, better known as RICO. It allowed leaders of criminal organizations like the Hells Angels to be prosecuted for crimes they ordered others to do. It also added additional penalties for crimes like murder or arson done in relation to a criminal enterprise. This would be damning for the Angels. They'd kept expanding, just as Sonny had wanted them to while he was locked up. By the late 1970s, they controlled 90% of the meth trade in Northern California. With five labs dedicated to producing the drug, they made over $160,000 worth of meth every single day. In 1979, just two years out of Folsom, Sonny was arrested and charged with drug trafficking, prostitution, and the attempted bombing murder of two policemen. But just like his prior murder case, this trial quickly fell apart due to lack of solid evidence. After two mistrials, the charges were dropped. Sonny even threw a party for the jurors. Sonny was a free man and had just beaten the same RICO laws that had taken down members of New York's Italian-American mob. But what would eventually shackle Sonny for good would come from inside his own organization. Anthony Tate was as unlikely as informants come. He worked as a bouncer at topless bars in Anchorage, Alaska in the late 1970s. There, he befriended both the bikers and the cops. When he was feeling generous, he gave the police tips about criminal biker activity. On a lark, Tate bet two police friends that he could infiltrate the local Hells Angels charter. The prize? A steak dinner and a bottle of whiskey. Tate quickly earned his reward and eventually became an officer in the local charter, which was formed in 1982. The cops passed him on, this time to an FBI agent named Tim McKinley. Sonny Barger was McKinley's ultimate target, but first, he had to get his man to California. McKinley partnered with Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms agent Ted Baltus. The two agencies didn't normally work together, but the Angels had proved so tough to nail down that they felt the need to join forces. Tate became a walking mole. Everything he saw and every word he said was recorded. They communicated with Tate the same way the Hells Angels communicated with each other. Pages and payphones to avoid a tapped phone line. Tate eventually worked his way up the ranks and became West Coast representative. This move put him on the radar of Sonny Barger. On August 12, 1986, two members of the rival biker gang, The Outlaws, gunned down a Hells Angel named John Webb in Kentucky. A long-simmering rivalry that finally exploded. Sonny went to investigate and handpicked Anthony Tate to lead the charge. Now McKinley and Baltus had to stay patient, collect their evidence, and hope that Tate's cover would hold. On September 29, 
1986, Tate went to Sonny's house. The plan was to talk vengeance regarding the outlaws. But Sonny was indifferent to any plans for revenge. He knew it was near impossible to find the outlaws who had killed Webb, but he did tell Tate that if two outlaws were involved, then shoot two of them and call it even. The feds told Tate to sit tight and not be coerced into murdering anyone. They were so close to getting the perfect piece of evidence to build their case against Sonny. Their patience was rewarded on October 18, 1987, when Tate showed Sonny photos of the Outlaws Clubhouse in Chicago. He then proceeded to explain his plan to put explosives on the roof. Sonny responded, If that's what you gotta do, do it. This was the evidence the feds had been waiting for. They pounced. On November 10, 1987, the police came to arrest Sonny Barger. Sonny was first confused as to why he was being cuffed, which grew into a fury once he learned one of his own had ratted on him. As Sonny was marched into FBI headquarters, he slipped from his handler's hold just long enough to give one of the ATF agents a swift kick to the kneecap. He would go down swinging. But no amount of flailing blows could stop the inevitable. After a five-month trial, Sonny was convicted of conspiracy to violate federal law to commit murder. A cell in a Phoenix federal prison and a 59-month sentence awaited him. Sonny was released from prison in 1992. He was 54 years old and recovering from throat cancer. His time in Phoenix, though, meant he was a convicted felon, forever on the government's radar. When Sonny got out, the Oakland business he built from nothing was all but dried up. Too many of their meth cooks had been busted. Without Sonny as their figurehead, a lot of the Oakland Hells Angels had scattered. So Sonny decided to stay in Arizona. He liked the desert heat, and besides, California was getting too liberal for his tastes anyway. It would have been easy for Sonny to leave his biker past behind and buy a piece of land like George Weathern had tried to do. But Sonny had been a Hells Angel for too long. It was the only life he knew, and even the risk of another jail sentence wasn't enough to give up that identity. So, he started over. He reached out to a local biker gang called the Dirty Dozen, who had a reputation as the largest and most violent gang in the state. The Dozen had put in a lot of work eliminating rival gangs in Arizona, including the Vatos, Mongols, and Devil's Disciples. They were in total control of the Arizona drug trade and had no reason to accept an outsider into their organization. In October 1998, six years after he was released from prison, Sonny Barger was founder of a brand new charter, the Arizona Hells Angels. His first order of business was to bring over some old California brothers to clean house. They kicked out a bunch of the dirty dozen members that Barger didn't think were bad enough to be Hell's Angels. Of the 120 original members, only 42 stayed. 85% of them had felony arrest records. To this day, 
the Arizona Charter has the reputation for being the most vicious of all the angels. Sonny Barger was back on top of the Hell's Angels. His next challenge? Restoring the angels to the height of their 1960s popularity. In 2000, he published his autobiography, Hell's Angel, The Life and Times of Sonny Barger, which became an international bestseller. He has since written half a dozen more books on the life and times of an outlaw motorcycle gang. With Sonny as the author of his own story, he painted the picture of the angels as lovable outlaws who were the unfortunate victims of government overreach. The FBI and ATF would continue to try and catch Sonny for gun and drug offenses, but nothing major would ever stick again. He even made it back to Hollywood. In the mid-2000s, Sonny landed a recurring role on the Angels-inspired TV show Sons of Anarchy, where he played the role of Lenny the Pimp Janowitz. It seemed that Sonny Barger managed the most difficult feat of all, fall from the height of power, scrape rock bottom, and still make it back to the top. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Margaret LeBron, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. 